The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. They're going to go back to work in the way humanity has worked the majority of its life as independent workers, practicing their craft, practicing their trade, creating their podcast, but doing whatever works for them. And it'll succeed or not succeed in the marketplace, but there will be a lot of tools, a lot of education to make it possible for them to figure out how to succeed. The U.S. lags the rest of the industrialized world and having the infrastructure to support this, we lead the rest of the world in having the ethos to make it a wild screaming success. And I think we're going to find that post-COVID, that the majority of Americans are working as independent workers and that that work style is going to be one of the significant drivers to economic recovery in this country post-pandemic. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. Today's guest is Carl Camden. He's the former CEO of Kelly Services and the current president of Ipsy US, the Association of Independent Workers in the United States. You know, I believe that HR professionals sit in the intersection of work, power, politics, and money. And in that intersection is the gig economy. You may think, Ah, I work in HR. I don't have to worry about this. But more and more, you might be in it or the nature of work is changing and you may have to get involved with contractors and consultants in a new and different way. So in this conversation, we talk about the differentiation between full-time workers and the gig economy and how often that differentiation turns people into second-class citizens. And we also talk about the third rail of work which is health insurance benefits here in the United States, and how Ipsy and their partner iWorker are coming together to offer consultants and contractors something a little bit different to make health insurance accessible. The gig economy covers everybody from PhD scientists all the way through delivery drivers, and it could include you. So if you have any interest in this topic, here's my friend, Carl Camden. Hey, Carl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Lori. It's a pleasure. I've been waiting to do one of these with you for years. I know. I'm sorry. I'm so slow, but we're here. We made it happen. It only took a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, let's get right to it because you've had an interesting career trajectory that's taken a turn over the past couple of years. I think a turn for the better, but why don't you give us your origin story and tell us how you got to where you are today and like do it in a minute go. (laughs) I started out life as a college professor teaching psycholinguistics, was tenured department chair, started a small company to use that to do better marketing and advertising, sold it to an ad agency, became president of the ad agency, recruited from there to a bank, which was a little bit of a misfit for me culturally, and recruited from there to Kelly Services, where I became the CEO and began moving into the world of independent work. Retired two years ago, and Kelly asked me to continue a project to provide 
political rights, representation, and access to benefits for independent workers, and I've been very happy to do so. Well, what a career, and I love it. Thank you for doing that in a minute. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> I want to start today by talking about the future of work, but we, we can't do that unless we talk about the today of work. And today is a little messy. I think even though the world of work has changed, Carl, the default assumption is that full-time work in a corporation is better. And I think you've really challenged that. So where are we today in the world of work? Prior to the pandemic, McKinsey and our studies and others were all indicating over the next five to seven years that we would approach the point where independent work was the majority work style in this country. With the pandemic having created employment disruption for over 30 million people, many of them scrambling, we are seeing dramatic growth in the demand for and access to independent work. And I think instead of this taking several years, that we come out the other side of the pandemic with probably more than or close to 50% of the U.S. workforce working independently rather than working as an employee. Hmm. Now, that number is staggering because the way our systems are built, they're built on full-time work in America, whether it's healthcare, retirement, community benefits, political rights. So of that 50%, is it a majority of the 50% who want to do independent work or are they forced to do independent work? It's on both sides. There are large numbers of people who desperately don't want to be an employee but have worked in that work style in the U.S. because it was the only way to gain access to healthcare, disability, and other core benefit structures inside the United States. Similarly, there are a large group of people who are moving into independent work who would desperately like nothing more than to be an employee where they felt that there would be more certainty in the flow of work and the flow of income. So you have both of those attitudes important in the U.S. You have mismatches between work style and what the particular worker needs primarily all exasperated because we're one of only two countries in the world that tie benefits uniformly to employment rather than to citizenship. Well, that is so problematic because on both ends of the spectrum, you have people who desperately need medical care, health care, especially in a pandemic. And I just wonder in your new role, which is not so new for you anymore, what is Ipsy doing? What are you able to do for the worker who suddenly finds herself in an independent capacity and really freaking out about not only benefits, but you know, how do I get a business license? How do I get business insurance? I need access to a fax machine. I cannot believe it. But in 2020, I still have major enterprise corporations, Carl, asking me to fax them documents. So the woman who's thrown into this, what are you doing for her? We're doing several things. So Ipsy is a not-for-profit focusing on political advocacy. Our sister organization is a for-profit company that has been building group-rated insurance products for independent workers, and that's iWorker Innovations. My business partner, she's running a very complex organization. She has the brokerage now established in all 50 states. So what she's made available to Ipsy with these products is a bundle of benefits that will do all of the same type of outcomes 
that employees have. And for the first time in U.S. history, we've managed to do so with group-rated products, which means that they are much less expensive and affordable than when people used to have to go into the individual market to try to find insurance coverage. The last piece of this is health insurance. That all comes together now within a month. We were set back with the court decisions on the ability of associations to offer health insurance, but we've worked our way through that. And we will have all of the benefits that employees are used to having and business protection that they just took for granted and didn't know they had from the corporate umbrellas they were working under. We're looking to have all of that put together and bundled into the membership and the Ipsy Association. Well, that's pretty terrific. You think that would be on the cover of the New York Times because it's just so needed. So what are you doing right now to reach out to the independent worker who suddenly finds herself out in the marketplace trying to think about her value prop and what she's offering, but also wondering how she's going to provide to her family? Do you have an outreach campaign plan? Like, How are you going to let American workers know that this is available? We are beginning that communication effort. We now have 20,000 members of various types of memberships inside Ipsy. That's beginning to give us the mass to make uh, the political side pay attention and to begin to enable the direct marketing to them of bundled benefits for those who want them. A large number of people aren't looking for bundled benefits, but are looking to just be able to pick up a specific type of business insurance or so on to supplement what they currently have. All of that is going live as we are speaking, and people can go to the Ipsy site and they can become members for free to catch the political updates, to understand what we're doing in their states and so on, but then also learn how to gain access to both social benefits as well as the business support structures. That's amazing. That's really good news. Well, I do want to talk a little bit about the political side of the house. I mean, that's what's most intriguing to me because the impact of COVID and automation and just political sentiment in this country really affects the world of work. And so can you talk a little bit about your work in Washington and your work in the States and what you're doing to advocate for those independent workers? Surprisingly, one of the issues that we have to deal with as we look at providing benefits and support for independent workers is a set of archaic regulations inside the U.S. tax code, somewhat within the Department of Labor and within a variety of states that puts a lot of pressure on those workers to have to be classified as employees rather than allowing them to continue their status that they want to have as an independent worker. We came up in a time although you're much younger than I am, Lori, but we came up in a time when it was viewed as exploitive when you used independent workers as opposed to employees and companies were accused in lots of states and inside the government. It's just trying to avoid you know, benefit costs. Now what's happening is that those very rules are making it difficult in some states for people to work as independent workers and have access to these benefits and support services because they run afoul of those types of regulations. So across the country, we have been parts of coalitions and working at leading the end to what I would call discrimination against independent workers and making it a certainty that they can have access to the same types of support and benefits that employees take for granted. Well, let's talk a little bit about that comment around discrimination of independent workers and treating them like second-class citizens, which is something you mentioned earlier. How does that manifest in the workplace? Like, what have you seen? How are people being treated differently? 
I've seen it treated and I've seen it take place in an amazing number of ways. You'd be surprised, Lori, at the number of companies that require the independent workers to work in the furthest away parts to park their cars in the furthest away spots inside a parking lot because they're not employees. I've even seen companies where they never got around to snow plowing the parts of parking lots where the independent workers were going to be. And then the name badge, you know, often in many of these companies, the name badges, the tags you have are very different for an independent worker. And I've often viewed it as labeling them as the other you know, is not one of us. And even those who are on long-term assignments, you know, who aren't just coming in for a day or two to fix a specific problem. But, you know, if you look at PhD scientists who are working on a clinical trial, but they're doing so as independent workers because they work until the trial fails or succeeds, uh, they talk about how strange it is that they've worked for a year on a particular trial but yet they're not invited to the company picnic or when there's a a celebration. So the forms of discrimination are subtle, but it extends all the way up to the not-so-subtle and the very important. There are companies who work with us who want to be able to provide support out of the iWorker system for their independent workers who are on longer-term assignments but are constantly running into opposition from the legal department saying, no, no, no. If you provide them these benefits and somebody's going to come along and tell you that they're an employee now, and then we have to reclassify them, and then it causes a whole array of cascade of problems. Well, that's a pretty narrow view of humanity, (laughs) which is what lawyers take, (laughs) so I'm not surprised to hear that. But I'm also concerned about the other levels of discrimination because I think about independent contractors who are on site. You know, I've worked at Monsanto, Kemper Insurance, Pfizer, and we used heavily subsidized workforces, right? We went out and we found contractors and consultants for a lot of important work. And whenever those individuals had a personnel issue, I'm using air quotes, we didn't deal with it within HR. We told them to go back to their employer. Whenever there was discrimination or an allegation of something serious, I mean, maybe towards the end of my career, we took it a little bit more seriously. But, you know, we always defaulted to their employer of record. And that meant that we didn't get involved and we didn't often take care of the toxic issues that were happening in our work environment. So have you seen that as well? Very much so. And again, for the overwhelming majority of independent workers, the employer of record is themselves. Just as an aside, they're either in universes of one, they may have come in and deployment. So we talk about creating inside the Ipsy and iWorker uh, environment, what we would call a virtual HR department. We are the place they can go to if they don't get satisfaction inside their company. We can help them work their way through and help the company work its way through you know, kind of this tangle of laws. And we will see that increasingly as we become the advocate for this workforce pushing. And since we cooperate with a lot of the platform companies like Moonlighting, as an example, who provide opportunities or deployment opportunities for independent workers, inside the ecosystem, we're gaining enough weight and we're representing tens of millions, you know, and all of its various aspects of workers that we're increasingly able to have more push at making certain that that hidden discrimination doesn't take place and that these workers know that they've got a place to go to. Yeah, that's really good. Well, I'm really interested in this 
talent pool of independent workers, because I think you're right. It's very diverse. Their needs are diverse. Their aims are really complex. You know, some people are working to build an empire and some people are just working as a part of a lifestyle choice. But then you also have individuals who have been thrown into this marketplace because they don't have access to full-time work. And I wonder if we don't talk enough about this, because more and more, I see individuals in my own life who are older maybe disabled, maybe individuals who are part of the LGBTQ plus community or a minority really struggling to get into corporate systems. And so they find themselves in this world of independent work. A lot of new graduates are there as well. And they're struggling because the income often isn't what they expected. They're paying a higher rate for benefits. So can you talk about independent work with some of these marginalized communities? Absolutely. And it is interesting that when people are talking about the glories of independent work, they often will drift to talking to the PhDs, to the high-level coders and so on, who are making an excellent income doing what they're doing. And they don't talk about the people who are struggling just to make enough to live on. I will quickly put on a political hat and say we are one of the few, very, very few OCED countries that does not provide you know, a guaranteed minimum income to workers. That's why it's also been interesting to watch the current political debate as to, you know, what type of support do you supply to people? One of the reasons we've not been doing a GMI is it's proclaimed that, well, it'll keep people from taking work and that they'll just sit at home all the time. It's not been the experience in other countries, but as it turns out, it's a critical safety net as the world of work in the U.S., the rest of the world becomes more and more independent base, there are periods of time when things go wrong, when there's not an assignment, where there's not a, you know, the next deployment isn't available. And the rest of the world, again, has created a GMI system so that people know that there is a safety net of income coming in regardless of that, which is the type of safety net that the government provides to employees versus unemployment insurance and so on, but doesn't provide to the independent workforce. Yeah, I do want to interrupt you and say that here on this podcast and many of my listeners, we're all big fans of GMI or universal basic income, which is slightly different. But I think you're right that we don't provide it in America because we tie our worth to our work. And if you're not working, then you're a bum or you're lazy as opposed to the future of work where work is project-based, it's cyclical, and we don't want to penalize you for being out of work because you're not really out of work because when your project is not ramped up, you may be learning, you may be taking some downtime, you don't get compensated for your PTO. So it's super complex. And yet nobody in Washington seems to be really open to this conversation. Are you hearing anything positive in Washington about it? I am slowly. When we held our kickoff political meeting, Senator Warner was one of the speakers and a good, solid advocate. And he well understands the new world of work. He gets it better than most U.S. senators and understands the change in the benefits and payment ecosystem and so on that it's going to take. There's a little part of me also that cynically says the government prefers employment also because the taxation is automatic. <laughs> that's 100% right. You know that's true. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Whereas 
with the independent workers. And again, not the case in most other countries where taxes take place per transaction. But in our country, the independent workers file at the end of the year or quarterly, you know, their compilation of reports and the government assumes that there's always a lot of cheating taking place. And again, I think that there is some desire to keep the tax collection process in this country simple, but it's because we, again, we don't have the type of taxation that other countries do where they have transaction-based taxation in lots of European countries. So the taxation is still automatic, whether you are an independent worker or an employee. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, what we're talking about is really radically rethinking not only the world of work, but the way we govern ourselves and the way we interact with one another and the way we allocate funding. And this takes bold leadership. And I mean, you know, I'm all in for Joe Biden, right? I feel like I have no other choice, but it's not like I think Joe Biden is going to change the world here. So I just wonder, are we in for another 20 years of mediocrity around this conversation? Or are you optimistic that we can make some major breakthroughs in the next generation? I'm optimistic that the breakthroughs are in the process of happening right now. Wow, really? COVID has been such a disaster, not just in terms of physical health, but in terms of the nature of employment. And we're just watching waves of people, companies, start with companies who are saying we're not going to hire employees anywhere near like we did before. And we see waves of people saying they want to be able to have more control over their own life. And it used to be, you know, that people could take a job and Report did a great thing, and they could take a job, and they could work in it for 40 years and retire. But when was the last time, Lori, you met somebody who had worked in the same job for 30 years, 40 years? Yeah, my dad, and he hated it, you know? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so now you have people, and we view it as a longevity, you know, and we're, you know, HR departments, well, I hope that they stay for two years, three years. And everybody knows the answer when HR interviewers are asking you, how long are you going to be? I'm going to be here forever. I love you. <laughs> we <laughs> yeah. all know that. The biggest lie ever. <laughs> That's right. And it's at least one of them. So and we know it's not true. And so the independent work style also empowers in many ways workers in ways they've not been empowered before. And the rise of the deployment platforms and other things makes it even faster to be able to find your next assignment. I'm glad you are optimistic about a breakthrough in the world of work. I mean, it's good to hear that. And it's always good to have my cynicism tempered. I wonder if there are some closing thoughts that you can leave our listeners with. Like, what should they be looking forward to? What should they be aware of? What's happening in your world at Ipsy and in the world of work that you want them paying attention to? I grew up in a time when we were all taught in schools and by our parents that we would organize our life around our work. And that the only part of our life that perhaps we were ever going to enjoy was the part of time that we weren't working. We're now creating a world, some of it deliberate, some of it by happenstance because of the pandemic. But the world is unfolding here in the U.S. where people will increasingly be very empowered to arrange their work around their life. And at the end of the day, that's going to be better for society, better for child rearing, better for marriages, better for every aspect of society. And I deeply feel a, a big level of debt to Henry Ford, who created the concept of job, who created the concept of income security, who altered the face of American employment. But we're now done with that. What I call a job life cycle is now shorter than it's ever been before. How long can you expect a given job to persist in a given environment doing the same process is now generally two years or less. 
It used to be 15 years, 20 years. And if people are going to be able to adapt to the rapid pace of technology, to rapid changes in society, and be able to enjoy their life, they're going to go back to work in the way humanity has worked the majority of its life as independent workers, practicing their craft, practicing their trade, creating their podcast, but doing whatever works for them. And it'll succeed or not succeed in the marketplace, but there will be a lot of tools, a lot of education to make it possible for them to figure out how to succeed. The U.S. lags the rest of the industrialized world and having the infrastructure to support this, we lead the rest of the world in having the ethos to make it a wild screaming success. And I think we're going to find that post-COVID, that the majority of Americans are working as independent workers and that that work style is going to be one of the significant drivers to economic recovery in this country post-pandemic. Well, Carl, I always learn so much from you. I really appreciate your leadership and your mentorship of me over the past decade. I mean, it's just always been really interesting talking to you about these topics. And if people like me want to learn more, if they're interested in what you're doing with Ipsy, they want to know more about the benefit platform that you're providing, where do you want people to go? If they search Ipsy US, they will find our website. And in there will be both all of the information they need as to how to gain access to benefits, as well as the political issues that we are working on and how to get involved. And as I said at the beginning, they can subscribe. They can come in as a non-paying member. And then along the way, if they decide that they want to have access to the bundle of benefits and services, that's great. They can do so. They can buy them individually. But we just want to, it's hard to organize a group of people who value disorganization, but we're getting there. (laughs) I love it. That's so well said. Well, thanks again for being a guest on today's show and stay safe and stay healthy. You too, Lori. And thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Carl Camden. Now, if you want more information on Ipsy, iWorker, all the good stuff we talked about in this episode, head on over to lauriruderman.com forward slash punkrockhr dash one, two, three. And we've got a nice little PDF for you that gives you all the resources. While you're on my website, why don't you go ahead and sign up for my newsletter? You can head on over to lauriruderman.com forward slash newsletter and stay up to date on all sorts of stuff in the punk rock HR universe. This episode was produced by Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Production. Why don't you go ahead and start a podcast? I want to cheer you on. Head on over to emeraldcitypro.com for tools, tips, resources, all the good stuff. Danny will get you squared away. And as always, I'm so grateful you listened to Punk Rock HR. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.